Father God, let that be our heart, our heart's cry this morning. But Lord, we do not know how to rest. As my brother so eloquently put it, Lord God, we are far from you in this endeavor. We too, like the rest of the world, fall prey to the deception and the lie that somehow we can work our way into earning more that you have already poured out everything in us. You've given everything to us, Lord Jesus, in your sacrifice, in your death, your burial, your resurrection, the gospel, the beautiful good news that we celebrate this morning. Father God, so as we dive into your word this morning, and I know that we are here and we come in with all the baggage. Lord God, I come in with baggage. Come in with the junk from every week, Lord God, from within my own heart and from this world, Lord God, constantly pressing in. We need to be here this moment. Holy Spirit, descend on us, break us of whatever holds us captive so that we can see you afresh, so that we know how to walk in this abiding nature, to truly rest in you, our Savior. Holy Holy Spirit, just watch over us. Lord, I pray that you would just hide me in the care of your wings, Lord God, that the only thing that would shine through would be you through your word. Father God, may the words that I speak, me, be pleasing to you, O God. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Dustin Alley. I serve as associate pastor here at Cross Community Church, and I just want to welcome you this morning. Uh, If you're joining us with here uh, in the the room as well as online, we're just glad that you're here with us. Uh, As Taylor Burgess, the lead pastor, is taking a a brief sabbatical, uh, we have been going through a series as he was taking a season and a time of rest. Uh, We felt just kind of as a staff, as we were praying through what, what direction we wanted to go, that we needed to teach all of us. Uh, a little bit of how to rest. I don't know about you, but um, I need it. I need to know what it is to uh, rest in the Lord, to abide. So the title was Dwelling, and Cole worked with us the first week of dwelling in God's work, right? As a people of God, we work uh, from that, and we see that in John 15. Dave last week brought with us the word of how we dwell in God's word, and how God's word is the instruction for us and how we are to abide. Today we're going to talk about dwelling in God's love. And next week, Alex, right there on the front row, is going to be dwelling in God's rest. He's going to be teaching us how to, uh, how to look for that eternal abiding. Because that's where this is all leading. The direction is not just the, the toil of this life but in the life to come. So we sit there. So let's read in our text this morning, uh, beginning in verse 9 as we dive in together. So as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So as we dive into this text this morning, I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit. Love. Uh, Really, what a completely overused word in our culture. 
right? Uh, in, in the English language, we throw around love, and I, I can say, I love my wife, right? And in the same breath, early in the morning, wee hours of the morning after a long, restless night of sleep, right, I can say, I love my coffee to get me going. Uh, equally so, I can say, I love answering emails. I don't like answering emails. Do you like answering emails? I just want to make sure that you're actually paying attention this morning. No one likes answering emails. It's okay. All right, you didn't even get it. You're not even with me. Come on, check, check in. We're here. All right, this word has been com- commandeered by many that would seek to redefine love as acceptance of all that I do along with all of who I am. Hollywood has used this word to describe every romantic connection under the sun, right? This culture, and even some Christians as well, have used the word in their marriage vows only to say later that, oh, I have fallen out of love and break their covenant. So it is no surprise that we have a difficult time actually defining this word. But what if, what if this beautiful term can be understood once again, right, from this text? What if we can peel back all the layers of all of our misunderstandings and see with a fresh new set of eyes what Christ means when he commands that we love one another? See, the correlation between God as the gardener and Christ as the true vine begins to speak to us today. See, it shows the intimate relationship between God the Father and his creation, right, as he sends the Son. And it shows us what it is like for us to love. See, this is clearly evident in Christ, God in the flesh, who completely identified with his creation. And we see this all throughout Scripture. In in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, Christ Christ is pictured here uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And then again in Matthew to make the connection. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. God, through the power of the sacrifice of his son, and is still making a way for sinners to come to him today. Right? We know this. John 3.16, we can all quote it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You remember that, Jaden? Yeah, I'm talking to you. You know John 3.16? You better know John 3.16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loves his people. So not only does the Bible showcase the display of God's love for his creation, but first John, he is declared to be love. Now, in other words, he is the source and the direction of all love in the universe. So how can God be love? This is the This is a thoroughly Trinitarian understanding of the Godhead, as we'll see here in a moment. Uh, For to be love, you must have been able to show love, which God does completely in the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's done that for all eternity. So in perfect love, he turned his mind and created humanity, us. That's why we stand here. And now for believers, he is showing us that he is still very active and moving in powerful ways, which enables us to rightly understand his constant pruning in our lives as an act of love. God is perfectly working in and through his son to empower his children for the spread of the gospel, and the wonderful outcome is his majesty and his glory. Yet for many Christians today, we're not living with the tr- this truth in mind, right? And instead, we're still living like unbelievers in our own strength and in our own power, seeking to try to do something that only God himself can provide. We take the shallow end of the pool of love, Whereas God is inviting us into something much greater and far more pervasive and sustaining. 
I like C.S. Lewis's analogy of what salvation really is for the people of God and how people reject it, right? When we think of non-believers just rejecting this good gift, it's like, as he would describe it, a child playing in the city building mud pies when an offer to go to the beach has been presented to them. Instead, we go about and we just play in the dirt. How much of that is so true for us as Christians when Christ has is invited us into this beautiful relationship and we're content to use our old modes and definitions of love when he is commanding us to walk in something far greater. So let this time be one of excitement as we marvel at the Father's work in every believer's life as he is growing us up into Christ and perhaps he's laying for you and I a new foundation of what it means to love God and neighbor. So the background to get this, uh, this really sets the stage, right? This sets the weightiness for the task at hand. When God says love uh, and what he means by this, he showcases it for us. God doesn't just tell us, he does it for us. So to get the scene, remember where Christ is at right now at this time. So most likely Christ and his disciples, they finished their meal in the upper room, right? They've broken bread. Christ has declared who he is to them, which we'll celebrate here in a minute. And during the celebration, this celebration is known as Passover, right? Where the Israelites fled from Pharaoh and Egypt uh, under the cover of, uh, of darkness, right? And where the angel of death had come and completely annihilated the Egyptians. And the Israelites had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost in order to be protected. And so through their, through their obedience and the sacrificial lamb, uh, they were protected and it's befitting here that Christ stands in the way, stands in the place to be this sacrificial lamb for us once and for, uh, for all, for all eternity. So it's no, it's no small incidence that Christ was here at this moment. It is important to note that Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who would later actually be revealed as a traitor, was present as well, uh, right? Who would, who would betray Jesus. And he had left, but not before Jesus had washed his feet. It's no small task, no small task that your enemy standing right before you in Christ knows who he is and he's still pleading with him, washing his feet, declaring one more time, turn, one more time, turn. And Judas in his hardness of heart leaves. So Christ here is alone in this, in this passage this morning with his true disciples and he's declaring for them this lasting truth. And it's the last I am statement from the gospel of John, uh, according to John, where Christ teaches this beautiful principle. And after this, he's going to be crucified. Let the weightiness of that set in. And this is what he wants to bestow on you and me today. Christ has already poured out his heart to the disciples in the upper room where he fellowshiped with them one last time. Now he desires to impart beautiful truth to us. So the main idea this morning I want you to see is the Christian's display of love is a testament to the heart of God. It's us looking like our daddy. And we see that right there in the front, trusting in Christ's love brings joy and fulfillment. We search for a lot of things in this world, don't we? A lot of things for satisfaction. We've just been going through a move at our home, and uh, what we recognize in the move, and we've been trying to get settled, right? And even that can be a, a false idol. But, you know, the contentment that we seek after in this world is not lasting contentment. It's not meant to satisfy it's meant to direct us to worship, worship a holy God that gives good gifts to his children. So it's amazing to us how we like to go after small things. So here's where we see the beautiful picture of what theologians call the Trinity, to get back to our, our passage this morning. 
uh, in verses 9 through 11. Let me read it to us and, and reorient our minds. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, is my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. And here, again, this is where we see what theologians call the, the Trinity. The Trinity is a difficult concept, right? It's one that at the end of the day, you should kind of walk away going, I'm a little stumped here, three and one, one and three. This, this is kind of strange. But yet, this is what we clearly see in the Scriptures. God has revealed himself as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to listen to one of the early creeds that we had. Christians were good at writing down as they were combating heresy as the church was growing. And the Athanasian Creed explains this very well for us. It says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have one divinity, equal glory and co-eternal majesty. So when the creed continues, as it kind of fleshes this out a little bit more for us, but so what's the point in talking about the Trinity right here at this, at this venture, right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain it to you. First and foremost, God expressed love completely before time began within the personhood of the Trinity. So how is God love? Well, he expressed love already in, in who he was. Second, and this is building off of this, since he was already displaying love perfectly within himself, you and I are not the center of the universe. God is. I hate to bust your bubble. See, he didn't need you to show love. Every other world religion explains something along these lines because created things were coming as out of that, as a need to the deity. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me standing here right now declaring his word. He is perfectly content within himself. He is fulfilled within himself. Therefore, the display of his love, and this is the beautiful part about it, for his creation is an overflow of the love that he has within himself. Third, since he is love, he sets the terms, not us. You don't get the definition of love. You don't get to display what you think is love. God himself is declaring love to you. So it should be of no surprise that he would desire his children to learn to love and express love as he does. Here Christ draws us into, into a closeness, right, into this ultimate reality of his great love for his children and his desire to see them love in return. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, right? Peter would declare to, to the disciples he's writing to that you have not, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? Paul would write to Timothy, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Right? With, uh, with which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is a beautiful picture. So does that not awaken something deep within you? The very God of the universe who was completely satisfied in himself because he didn't need you decided to love us 
with the same love that he has showed himself. So now take with your mind's eye and look back at verse 9 and get the weightiness of this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. All the love of the Father is poured out on you, his children. Holy smokes. You can't walk away from this and not get excited and pumped up that God is working in and through you through this powerful gift of love. We need to sit here and we need to marinate, right? That's a country word, marinate, marinate for the rest of our lives because we are not going to reach the end of this well, guys. You're going to dig into this forever. It's going to be unending. And then when we see him face to face, you're going to continue to marvel at this. So what a great savior that we have. How awesome it is to know how much this union means to him. Therefore, trusting in God, sustaining love becomes the catalyst, right, for obedience, Right, and we think about this. One commentator notes, right, that our union with Christ is a living union, so we may trust, so we may bear fruit. A loving union, so that we may enjoy Him, and a lasting union, so that we need not be afraid. So it's within this framework of love that we each live and move and have our being. This is beautiful for us. It fuels our faith in our Redeemer that can tr- that we can trust Him. No matter what life may bring our way, no matter what crushing adversity we experience, right? Christ is calling us to a deep, unwavering faith. A deep, unwavering faith. And Ian Bounds talks about a faith like this. He says it covers temporal as well as spiritual needs. Faith dispels all undue anxiety and needless care about what is to be eaten, what is to be drunk, what shall be worn. Faith lives in the present And regards the day as being sufficient unto the evil thereof, it lives day by day and dispels all, right, all fears for the tomorrow, for the morrow. Faith brings great ease of mind and perfect peace of heart. I don't know about you, but I want that faith. I want that faith that brings perfect peace and contentment. Christ is promising complete joy and satisfaction that will overflow into all walks of life. So the abiding love, faith-filled relationship brings us into true joy, joy that is unending. It is also a love that works. And I believe that this is probably where Christians struggle the most, right? Because when the affections of love wane in our lives, we feel somehow we may have lost it, right? Somehow we may have never truly loved in the first place. And this is when Satan seeks to plant his evil seeds, But as I hope you can see, love is more than a feeling. It is a whole body and soul response to what has been given to us. But as I hope you can see, right, therefore we abide and obey our living Savior. Though our salvation does not involve our work, our sanctification most certainly is a life full of work, sold out to a Savior who is making more of himself. We see that in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's the promise for us. This is the heartbeat and love that desires to work. Earlier in this passage, Christ would even say something similar. He said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, in the economy of God, true love works. True love moves. True love grows because its source is the wellspring of unending love that, can, that cannot be exhausted and will never dry out, as we sang about earlier. So how does love work? What does this look like for us? Displaying Christ's love confirms our heritage. Verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have, com- I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. What a beautiful picture there. And fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See, Christ's love for us is not only for us, is it? It is a love that is projected outward to a watching world. Does this not sound familiar? Christ has already told us this, right? What, is, what does it look like? What is the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love is to be the overarching principle that is to guide the believer through the rocky road of living on this earth. This is a specific love. It's not the fancy-driven, immoral-laden lust that spewed out from Hollywood. It's not the false, debased, shallow thing called love that is promoted by those that are driving our society. No, this love is godly. It's remarkably out of this world. It's completely sacrificial. It ultimately shows us that this life is not only about me, but about every other believer who calls the name of the Lord our God. It is in that showcase of love that the watching world will be won over to Christ. You get that. Like, that's the significance of it. It's through this powerful display of love for one another that the non-believers' will, walls will begin to actually be crumbled down. They can't stay there. Church, why are we losing the culture war in the battle? It's not because we aren't giving enough funds or speaking out boldly in the public square or on our social media platforms. It is because we're not loving each other well. We've been placing stumbling blocks of hatred, disdain for those that, did not, that do not think the way that we think or act the way that we act. It happens when we fail to love one another by, sh- by, by showcasing compassion. When somehow someone in our congregation is hurting in pain or in dis- desperate need, or simply they just have a different viewpoint than you politically. Right? It happens when we only desire the company of those that look and act like us. Instead of the beautiful picture in Revelation that where the true church, universal church is around God and it is from every tribe, tongue, and nation, period. It happens when we fail to love well by, allowing our, by, by convicting our brothers and sisters, right, who are caught in sin. And we just let them heap condemnation upon themselves and upon the bride of Christ and then the world looks in and ridicules. This only puts us in the same camp as the world. And that world definitely needs a savior. So why would we act like that? So our love must look wholly different and all-encompassing like our Father's love is to us. This love looks nothing like what the world is offering. Nothing. It is more sweeter. It is infinitely more beautiful. For when the church looks like what Christ is describing here, the world looks in and says, there is something vastly different about that community. And that community from the first century, when we, we have record of this, This first century church put Rome to shame. Rome felt that it needed to build the the bedrock of its community and the people off of those that were poor and destitute. So it was more than happy to crush them. And the church comes in and rescues them. Josephus would remark, right, about this clearly. And so it put Rome to shame. Generals from Rome would, would respond about the care that the Christians had When the plague was running around, uh, Rome was leaving and Christians were coming in and laying down support. This is very different. 
the Jewish community, the ones that describe themselves as, the, as worshiping the one true God after Christ. Uh, we saw the deadness in this when we were going through our sermon series earlier this year about dead religion of just looking to the law and being and, and, and as if the law is something that would save us when it, when it cannot save, right? And what we see there, we see a sacrificial system that was broken. And by the time that we see it in the first century, we have a Jewish population that is not caring for its priesthood, and if we know anything about the priesthood, if we were to look back to the Old Testament, they did not have an allotment in the land, so they could not care for themselves. They had to rely on the people who were given an allotment in the land. Their devotion was to be to the Lord on behalf of the people, and the people would come and, and, and support them. But by the time we get to the first century, these priests were, were, were little better, better than beggars. They could not support themselves. They had to go. They couldn't, they couldn't support their own sacrificial system. They had to go out and they had to, they had to plant their own foods and then come back. So they couldn't, they, they, were, they were completely distracted in their service. And they couldn't uh, obey the Lord, what the Lord had commanded them to do. Guess what happens when the church is rescuing? We look in Acts and we see as they're caring for the widows, right? That same section where, where we see the first in instance of the deacon role, what we also see is that droves and droves of the priests come to faith in Christ. Because in the deadness of their religion, they couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the love of the church to itself. The true love of the Father to his humanity. And they come over because the gospel is just overwhelming. So it's in, and this display of love brings us back to the beautiful promise that we heard from our passage last week. And it's repeated for us again here, right here in verses 16. Listen to this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I just want to stop there for a second. Uh, just, just let that sit well with you because we've been talking about over this past week of what it looks like to abide in the true vine. And we see the threats, right, of being cut off and burned. But at the end of the day, who is holding the reins to your salvation? Who is holding your heart in his, the palm of his hand? Thank God it's not you and me. It is this loving Savior that holds you tightly to himself. It is this loving Savior that is going to produce the fruit in you. It is this loving Savior who is going to prune you and make you more like himself. This is what he does and what he accomplishes through his good gift. See, the beautiful promise, when Christ redeems a child of God and that child bears fruit, that child will abide. That child will come to God with bold questions, right? That's what we see right here in verses 17. What happens with this abiding and this fruit? Ask the Father in my name. Whatever you ask, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, Dave clearly warned us last week, and I think the same applies for us this week, because the questions that the Father is receiving and answering are in accord with his will. Right? They're not selfish questions that are, that are trying to seek our own satisfaction and our own lust and desires. Right? Not only that, but the Lord determines how he's actually going to respond to us. Isn't it amazing that even when we're praying to him in his will, how we can oftentimes ask with or expect different answers. Right? And then the Lord will answer in the way that he deems necessary, which will bring him most glory and ultimate joy and satisfaction to you and me when we truly trust him. So the question becomes, how are we doing in this command that Christ gave to us, his disciples? Christ gave this last instruction just before his final trial and crucifixion. He knew the Father was pleased to crush him. He knew that his disciples would abandon him. He knew all of this, yet he continued to purchase the bride spotless and beautiful for the Father. 
So unquestionably, this shows that he is the true vine and the perfect example of how to love. So should you be searching outside of him? I hope the resounding response from you is absolutely not. But if evidence to the contrary, how oftentimes we fail in this. So let me ask some questions, application, I hope, to help us think through how you and I can apply this text to our own lives. Number one, how are you pointing to Christ first in your life and his sustaining work? How are you pointing to Christ first in your life and his sustaining work? See, life is now different because of the work that Christ has done for us. Paul says to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. The old way of life is dead. So the goal is not to come to Christ and then keep on living the way that you were before Christ rescued us, as, we were dealing, as Paul was dealing with us in Romans 7 when we were doing our time of confession this morning. Stop grabbing for those things that used to please if they pleased at all. They weren't pleasing. They will not and have never provided what they promised. Only Christ can make the claim that when you drink from his living water, when you abide in his all-sustaining love, that you will never thirst or want again, period. If your life shows no sign of growth at all since professing Christ, then something is not right. You need to ask the deeper question, do you really know Christ? Are you really his? Have you been rescued by this great redeemer? How are you submitting then to the pruning that God desires for you? See, the book of Proverbs tells us, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, for the, for whom the Lord loves he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. And Warren Wiersbe comments on the discipline of the Lord. And just let this sink into you for your minute. The greatest judgment God could bring to a believer would be to let him alone. To let him follow further into his sin. To let him have his own way. Because God loves us, he prunes us and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. So as the gardener prunes the plants for maximum production, so the Lord prunes us in order that we will bear much fruit for his glory. So I pray that we would accept this willingly because it is best for us. It is given by a loving God who knows how to prepare uh, us for himself. What areas of your life are you still relying on your own strength and not Christ? We know that we do this. That's, what, that's so much of what we came in with this morning, right, in our own strength. That's why we constantly need this weekly reminder as we come together to worship this God that we do not have it all figured out. So what idols of self are still ruling your life, right? Have you taken a rigorous spiritual inventory of your life? Christ desires that you lay down your idols and self-reliance so that he can work a marvelous way in marvelous ways through you. Paul says to the Ephesians, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Bring those sins of self-reliance into the powerful light of the Savior who destroyed their power long ago when he nailed them to the cross. Let's pray. Father, I know, Father God, within the room this size, Lord God, that there's much going on in our hearts, much going on in my heart. As your word rakes me over the coals, Lord God, I recognize my own sin and my own failures, Lord God, that quickly I recognize I've done so much in my own strength. Father, I ask for all of us here, Lord God, that you would just convict us, show us, reveal us to the areas in our life there where we are uh, falling so short 
what you would have for us. Father God, you have offered us this sweet gift to abide in your love. A love that is ultimately satisfying, a a love that is far beyond our comprehension, Lord God. We know the temptations in this world, Lord God. And we know that when we place our, our, our hope in them, Lord God, we have always walked away wanting. We've always walked away just empty inside. Lord, when you are declaring to us, Lord God, that you're going to fill us to the brim with your love. So I pray for those right now, like myself, that have just, we know you, Lord God. Father God, but we struggle. We struggle to let you just fill us with pure satisfaction and love. We try to do it our own way. Lord God, we get it all mixed up in our hearts and our minds where we try to work for you to earn something that you have freely given to us. Lord God, you've called us to abide and to rest. Lord God, and from that filling, we will work as we spoke about earlier. Instead, we try to work the rest. And it doesn't work. <laughs> Father, but there's others here, Lord God, that long, long have they trod this world And they've done their own thing, far from you. But they too are walking away empty, not seeing, Lord God, um, that beautiful peace that all of the world's lust and temptations have, have poured in on them. They're empty inside, Lord God. Christ, I pray that you'd make yourself known. Jesus, that this time, Lord God, as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord God, would be the time of new life for them. That they would flee from their old ways, seek to pursue you in righteousness, repent of their sins, trust and follow after you as Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, I pray that with all my heart, and I know that it's close to your heart. For that's why you came, to rescue us.